Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Pastor Ben Pitney has a message titled, Hell, the Ultimate Consequence. Join us in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. You know, if I'm going to talk about hell today, I thought that it would be appropriate to use heavy metal, or it could be acid rock, um, and a particular group called Megadeth, and their song called Ultimate Consequence. So, um, I don't know, if maybe you're a Megadeth fan. You are? I, I knew there would be one person, Jeremy, I... Totally love you. See, actually, I'm a Megadeth fan too. What? Yeah. I totally, I totally love it. But other people are like, oh my gosh, uh, you can't do that in church. I'm, I, uh, you know, I'm like, no, we're talking about hell today. So yes, you can. That, that, that's it. We're talking about hell today. And the thing about talking about hell is, um, you know, in the church that I grew up in, we talked about hell quite a bit, right? In um, my parents' or my grandparents' church. But the 21st century version of that, we don't address this issue very much. And actually, the Bible has so much to say about hell. Actually, Jesus addresses hell more than he does heaven. He talks about the consequences of, of um, and a eternal judgment actually quite a bit, but we don't like talking about it because it's uncomfortable. Um, that's why I used Megadeth. I knew it would make some of you like, what is happening? You know, this weekend, listen to this. This weekend, there was this golf tournament. Now, if you don't like golf, just be quiet, all right? Here's the thing. The LPGA, the Ladies Professional Golf Association, and they have a tournament, and it's much like it mirrors the men's golf tournament called the Ryder Cup, but the women's golf tournament is called the Soline Cup. And it, here, here's what it is. It's all about the American professional golfing women versus the European golfing women, and it's, it's, it's fantastic competition. I mean, it's awesome, Right. The men's version is called the Ryder Cup. So they take the top players in the world and they compete. And they create games that are not just the lowest score, but they create all kinds of games, mass play games, best ball games, and, and uh, they team everybody up. Well, the number one, world number one player for uh, uh, the United States of America, her name is Nellie Corda. She's 23, 24 years old, and she is outstanding. She's super fun to watch play golf. She has an older sister. Her, name, her older sister's name is Jessica Corda, and I think she's like number 17 in the world. Well, they, were, they put them together on the same team, all right? Oh, it's, it was amazing. Unfortunately, the European women were beating um, in the first uh, round, the first day, were beating uh, American women. And so it was kind of a, um, you know, it's highly competitive, Right? And uh, it comes, comes down to about whole 17 yesterday, and it goes through Labor Day, right? So there's, there's a lot of golf yet to be played, all right? Through hole 17, number one, world number one has a 23, 24-foot putt. I mean, it's a long putt on the green. So if you don't know golf, that's just a long. And it's big, windy, bendy putt 
world number one is putting it. If she sinks the putt, she's going to win the hole, all right? If she wins the hole, they go up by a, a stroke, and then they got one hole left to play. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy, right, how competitive it is. So she puts it, and it's just trickling towards the cup, the hole. You know, that's the, where the pin goes in, if you don't know, right? It's called the cup, right? And, um, and it gets right down there, and it rolls right to the very edge, right? I mean, it's hanging over. It's like the hanging chad, all right? Some of you are like, what is that? It's hanging right on the edge, right? Okay, so here's the deal. The European um, uh, opponent, she's in her 20s too. She's young or whatever. She goes up, you know, and she just picks it up. She picks up the ball and she flips it to Jessica. And it's just like, or or Nellie, her name's Nellie Corda. um, And it's just like kind of nothing, right? There wasn't one person on the green that thought that that ball was going to roll in. But here's the thing about golf. You cannot get around it. Golf is a a sport of actual specific rules. Rules that are um, applied with a tremendous amount of integrity, okay? That's golf. Specific rules applied with a tremendous amount of stringent integrity, so we, all the players, you know, with men, it started out as an exclusive men's sport. It's just the history of the sport. It's considered a gentleman's sport because you honor, you prefer, you honor and you respect the other person. So you're just careful. It's, it's about who goes first and turns and the furthest one away. And you have honors on the tee box if you won the previous hole. So you get to go first. It's all about honor and respect and integrity. That's the game. So the rules are a big deal. So at the beginning of a tournament, for each team, all right, or each player, the, the PGA officials go through specific rules. And they they, um, uh, you know, if there's something unique about the course and there's some specific rules and they, here's the rule for this, and they go over what would be most controversial in tournament play, all right? One of the rules is, is that when there is this particular thing, you think it never happens. It happens actually all the time where a ball's just right on the edge of the cup. It has potential to just, you know, one eighth of a turn and it just would have fallen in, Right? It happens all the time. What's the rule? What's the rule? All right? There's a rule about this that says you have to wait 10 seconds before picking the ball up. 10 seconds. You have to wait 10 seconds. Now, here's the, the honor and the respect part. Nobody ever picks up their opponent's ball. So two things happen. She doesn't wait 10 seconds, and she picks up her opponent's ball. But but it's kind of one of those things where it's a double-edged sword because she's picking up the ball like, here, I'll get this for you. I'm closer. Here you go, right? Honor and respect. The problem is she picked it up inside of 10 seconds. So what happens? Nobody's thinking about any of this, by the way. Nellie Cord is on her knees going, oh my gosh, it was like that close. And the whole crowd's like, ah, right? The rules official's like, one, 1,000, two, 1,000. All right, so then she goes right to the European uh, female and she says, hey, I'm sorry. I don't like it any more than anybody else does. You didn't wait 10 seconds. Nellie Corda wins the hole, right? 
changes the entire match. What happens on hole 17 is basically a tie again. The American women win by one stroke, right? One stroke, okay? Right? Now, here's the thing. Oh, who loves this? Who loves this? The media. The media. Of course the media does. Why? It's a controversy. It's a story. And we get to talk about it for two days, right? And we get to like, the rules official is such a meanie. And what does Nellie Cordes think? And what does the European lady think? And what are the coaches? And what does everybody, what do you think, right? What do we think? Well, you know what we think? We love the rules. We love the rules until the rules are harshly applied to us. <laughs> European lady, she's like, well, yeah, the rules. And the technicality is if the letter of the law, I broke the rules, whatever. But nobody thought it was going to roll in. Nobody on the green, right? Nellie Corda, what's she say? She's in tears. She's crying. She's like, I don't want to win this way. I don't need to win this way. I would have rather lost the hole than this whole thing. This is terrible. But what are the rules? The rules are golfers don't get to decide there are rules. Why? Because Nellie would have said, ah, just take it, forget it. I don't want to win this way. Europeans were like, this is unfair. This is stupid. Why would you apply the rules like this? Right? The rules exist for a reason, but it's about applying. So they can all agree, we need the rules, we need the rules. And then when it's applied, it's like, ugh. Oh, if this isn't the essence of the way we think as a culture, I don't know what is, right? When it comes to God, it's the same thing. We talked about it just a little bit ago. When it comes to the consequences, when you're talking about eternity, everybody wants to talk about eternal life. That's the easy thing. Life in Christ, life spent with God forever, forever, right? Eternity, we've been talking about this, but we can't spend four or five Sundays in a row talking about eternity and eternal life and not talk about the other part of eternity, which is hell, eternal damnation the eternal consequences of rejecting God. And here's the thing. We are under a delusion in our culture. We're under a delusion completely that you can scream at your wife or you can scream at your husband and it's, it's okay. It's all right. This is, you don't understand the circumstances. This is okay. There's times when it's okay. Right? We're under delusion. We're under a delusion that um, there's appropriate time to cheat on your taxes. Right? Our culture is under an illusion that you can eat more than any human being should ever eat, and it's fine. It's fine. I can turn another person into my own personal idol, and it's, that, that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I can commit adultery and somehow, you know, pull it off or get away with it and, you know, like, well, this was, uh, this is different. You don't understand, right? I can spend endless hours on the internet looking at things that I should not look at and it's okay. I can blow off church anytime I don't feel like going. It, there's nothing wrong with that. Somehow in those little mundane moments of life, there are places where we're all very tempted to buy into this illusion that life doesn't have consequences in the rules. You know, they're just like, uh, what's that movie uh, with the pirates? You know, they're like parlay, right? Isn't that what uh, Johnny Depp says in Pirates of the Caribbean? Parlay, right? 
meaning they're just more like guidelines. If you, maybe you haven't seen parts of the Caribbean. I don't know. You, golf and parts of the Caribbean. If you haven't done, watch those two things, something's going on. All right. Now, what I want to say is that that delusion that we have, that our culture has, is a product of something deeper and more profound. It is that all of us in places and times want to retain ownership of our own lives, right? We want to retain ownership over our own lives. We all want to be our own sovereigns, actually, right? We all want... Want, and want to write our own rules. We want to apply the rules the way we want to apply them. And I, we want to believe that moments like that, uh, you know, my liberty, my independence, my pleasure, my comfort, my satisfaction, my power is the most important thing. So you know it's true. You, you all know it's true. If you're a husband and sometime in the last weeks, you, you, you said something awful to your wife. Uh, you haven't done that because you're ignorant of what God uh, expects of you. You've done that because in that moment, you didn't give a rip about God and what he wants because you wanted what you wanted. And at that moment, you've ascended to the very throne of God and said, I'm going to do what I want because that's what I want to do. That's what happens. In our culture, and it happens in our lives actually all the time. It's a dark, dangerous thing, and you cannot avoid talking about this when you're talking about eternity, actually. And in fact, the fact of the matter is, sin isn't somehow the breaking of just some abstract set of laws. That's not what sin is. Sin is the breaking of a relationship with God. That's why in the Ten Commandments, when you read through the Ten Commandments, and I'm not going to do that, what's the first in the commandments? What's the first one? What are the first few? Those first few, uh, first commands have to do with relationship with God, worship of God, because it's only when God is in his rightful place that everything else is in its rightful place. Now, Scripture is really clear about this issue of consequences, actually. It's really clear. A couple of references, you know, you can look up later, Psalm 15, Galatians 6, 7, right? Um, put Galatians 6, 7 up, Sherry. You actually begin to take, take the shape of moral form of idols in our lives, but there's warnings from God, right? God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. God won't be made a fool for a person will reap what he shows. So see, think about the dynamic that goes on here with us and God. Every day I'm harvesting seeds I previously planted. Every day I'm planting seeds that I will someday harvest. And the problem is that we are all very skilled at denying our own harvest, right? What does it mean to live with eternity in mind, to live in the here and now? We've been talking through this over the last number of weeks, right? To live as if you actually believe in forever, whether it is forever with God in eternity, in glory, heaven, or hell. The Bible does two significant things that are obviously clear and unavoidable. You, you, you cannot... without. 
And unless you're just not going to read all of scripture, you can't get past this. Here's number one. Here's the first thing. For the, the, the first thing, the Bible is very clear in its teaching that humanity is headed toward an escapable time, an inescapable time of judgment. It's clear, it's laid right out by God, about God, who he is and his nature. Humanity is headed toward an inescapable time of judgment. Number two, there's the second thing that the Bible does, um, all of scripture does this. The Bible teaches us that if we live a life of unrepentant spiritual adultery, denying God's existence, breaking his commands, rejecting his grace, we will spend an eternity in unending, the unending torment of hell. And I deeply believe that the reason these two teachings have become uncomfortable for us and have often become the source of debate and controversy, even though they are clear in Scripture and have been treated like the embarrassing uncle in your family, you know, that we, do, that we just want to hide from public, you know, everybody seeing and knowing, right? I believe it's this. We don't take the holiness of God seriously or the sinfulness of sin Seriously, we don't do it. We don't want to talk about hell. We want to be able to go, when that ball is right on the edge, right on the lip of the cup, just just hanging over, we want to go, oh, it wasn't going to roll in. We want to decide, right? That's that's all of us. It wasn't going anywhere here. Pick it up real quick, right? Way to go, right? We're all like that. Even Nellie Corda, world number one. It was obviously not going in. I don't want to win that way. Just whatever, just let her have it, right? As if actually, when you're talking about the rules, as if that's better. See, in all of us, if all of us would meditate, would focus some time on the stunning nature of the absolute perfection of God, and his holiness, we would begin to track with this, what the scripture says about the dark, horrendous, heinous ugliness of sin. And we would have a different response to these teachings here, actually. And so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at this. It's kind of a longer passage, but we're going to read it because there are two very clear thematic teachings here, the clear and inescapable time of judgment and the dark and horrendous threat and danger of hell brought together in the teaching of Jesus, actually. Jesus is teaching about final judgment and it's helpful and instructive in this passage. Let's just read it. Matthew chapter 25, and let's start at verse 31. Here it is. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, that's gonna be unbelievable. That's an angel army described in other places. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. (laughs) All the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate people one from another like a shepherd separates sheep from goats, because sheep and goats are different. Sheep and goats are different, all right? That's why he does that. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation 
of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you the truth. Listen to me, he says. Listen, let me tell you what is true. Just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then, here's the part we hate. Then he will say to those on the left, man, this is so unfair. Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal, eternal fire. That's, that's hell. Fire burning eternally. That's been perfe- prepared for the devil, that's Satan, and his angels, everybody that follows him, right? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't receive me as a guest naked. You didn't, it did not clothe me sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will answer, Lord... Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't give you, what you whatever you needed? Then he will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will depart into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if you go back to the passage in front of this, the parable the story, this interactive video of the parable of the talents and how this goes, it's another illustration and another story that presents this picture that's not, that, that's crazy, right? This worthless slave in the, in, the, in the story before this is thrown into the out of darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is another description of hell. So, Oh, here it is. This sounds wow, right? The thing about it is, is we want the commands of the Old Testament. They seem to be black and white, right? That's what we want. But we also want this grace. We want to be able to apply um, our interpretation to things. We don't like, we want all of God's mercy and grace, but we don't like it when it comes to justice, and the justice of God, right? Let's just make a couple of observations first. Just kind of back up from 30,000 feet and just kind of look at this just a little bit. There is in this passage no moral elasticity. No moral elasticity. What do you mean? It's not as if this is confusing. The judgment is precise and clear. We live in a moral world, and we would like to think that there's much more moral elasticity in life than there actually is. We want to be able to decide if the ball is, was going to roll in or not. We want it to be a flexible elasticity. We don't want the rules being just black and white, Right? But there is in this passage actually no moral elasticity. You cannot find it. None. You have moments in your life when you're working to convince yourself that what is wrong is not exactly wrong 
or uh, nor that, that, that wrong that somehow you have done doesn't fit under the category of wrong. There's no confusion actually here when it comes to Jesus' teaching. There are those who have lived this life of disobedience or those who have lived this life of obedience for the glory of God. It is absolutely crystal clear. You can't read this any other way. <laughs> well, Pastor Ben, would you just not focus on the bad stuff? Right? This is, it's, it's, it's harsh, right? Here, here, here's the next thing. The next observation from, from this far up, right, 30,000 feet, there is in this passage clearly the principle of moral, I think this is the word verticalness, or you could say verticality. <laughs> I don't think I'm making those words up. See, nothing you ever do is truly horizontal like this. Because we are made for God. We are made for him. He made us for him. There's a way in which everything we do has Godward motion in it, either a rejection of God or a loving, gracious, willing service of God. That's why, King David, We've gone through this, actually, a psalm that he wrote. Having committed adultery, having committed a mur at murder. What does he say in Psalm 51? It's, it's almost shocking to hear what he says when he confesses his sin. He says, against you and you only have I done this evil, God. You only murder adultery. See, David is recognizing his vertical human behavior. In Psalm 51, Jesus says, as much as you've done it to these, you've done it to me. You can't ever make your life just horizontal. The verticalness or verticality, every thought, every desire, every word, every action is towards God because we are made for God and we are either living for him or we are living with our back to him or stiff arming God, I guess. And there is no comfortable, neutral ground to be found. It's a moral rule, a moral world ruled by a holy God. You know, who everybody was upset with and who was easy, easy to take a big pot shot at? Who? The rules official. This woman who said, this is my whole job. I'm sorry, Nellie. You can't decide to give the whole away. That's not the rule. It's not your decision. Whether you want to give her the stroke and say, I don't want to win that way or not. It's been applied that way in all kinds of tournaments, right? Either it's the rules that we all go, yeah, we need the rules. Or there's no rules. You can't ever make your life just horizontal, right? Here's the next thing. Here's, there's one more big, big observation here is that judge, the judgment picture in this passage, it's concrete and very specific, very specific. It's about specific choices. It's about specific behaviors, about specific words. We don't live in, a, in general moments. It, we, don't, we don't live in a, solely my fault. Just this little battery pack thing here. 
And sometimes it just says, I just want to act ridiculous and interrupt you. See, specific behaviors, specific words, we don't live in, in general moments. We don't live in the nebulous, the nebula. That's not where we live, right? We live in a specific world of specific locations, specific choices, words, people. That's how we live. And God rules all of that with his lordship. He's master. He's Lord. He has designed a way to live by his law, his precepts, his commands. And I'm afraid that the church, the church, the universal church, followers of Jesus, we've been weakened in our resolve by the horizontal, moral, elasticity of the culture around us, right? We allow things in our lives and in our hearts through our eyes and into our minds that we should never allow. And we think it's okay. And it's not okay, actually. It's not okay. So we have to give careful thought here. The Bible is clear that there is an ultimate consequence and it should remind us that this is a moral world ruled by a holy God. And there's no like holding tank to just decide someday. It's eternity with God or eternity in hell. There's no like in between thing. That would be Moral elasticity, I'm not going to name it specific. And we come up with all kinds of names for it. There is final judgment. There's a place called hell, a place of horrible separation from God, a separation that is unthinkable in its misery. Imagine what would happen if God would withdraw himself right now, completely right now, his, his providential care from earth. Imagine the utter chaos that would emerge. Imagine, in the inhu- imagine the inhumanity. Imagine what it would be like. We actually make movies about things like this. There's a movie out there right now. It's, it's horrific. It's called the purge, where there's no rules. There's no real nothing. There's no consequences for everything. You can just kill anybody you want. There's one day where you can just do whatever you want and just kill everybody. It's a movie. It's the sickest thing I've ever heard of in my life, right? Our minds can't take in what it would really be like in a place where God is totally absent It's a horror, actually. Our minds struggle to understand what it would be like to live in horrible, eternal torment with fire being never quenched. We don't want to talk about that, right? The fact that this teaching is so clear in Scripture is itself actually grace. It's truly grace. This is the God of grace who opens the door so that we can look at the horror, so that we can be warned, so that we would be actually afraid, right? We would be afraid so that we would repent, so that we would run to the only place where we can find protection and redemption and salvation, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he does it. 
That's why he gives us this picture. That's why it's crystal clear. And maybe it takes for us the whole heinous horrors of hell and, and, that, and all that that means, the separation for God to drive us to the foot of the cross. Maybe that just experience it in some simple way because it's so easy for us to be asleep, morally flexible and elastic, right? Morally self-excusing. We do it all the time. So what God does is he puts, in his grace, he puts things in front of us as a warning. This chapter 25 is all about that in Matthew. It's a warning. It's a wake up. It's, let me tell you the truth. Did you hear Jesus say that? I tell you the truth. Or he'll say, I'll tell you the solemn truth. I'm not making it sound it's not foggy, is what he's saying. Listen, here's the truth. Without any filter on it, right? You can't escape. You cannot escape the existence of that final judgment. You can't escape, escape the biblical teaching that there's a place of eternal separation from God. Jesus just lays it out. An eternal torment, hell is real, that is a place for those who have lived lives of spiritual adultery, rejecting God's existence, breaking his commands, denying his grace, and setting themselves up on the throne of their own kingdom. I get to decide, by the way, when it comes to anything, let's talk about giving. It's none of your business, <laughs> right? Why? We, we, want, we want to categorize this thing called giving and, and money and things like that. Hey, you don't have any business uh, knowing you know, what I do. It, that's up to me. That's the way we want it. But we apply it like that all the time. Maybe that's why we're going through this Dave Ramsey study. It's not a secret. We want to help people get out of debt. We want to help people get on track and utilize the things that God has trusted us with are wealth in a, um, um, like a steward instead of an owner because the scripture clearly teaches that when you surrender your life to Jesus, you're no longer, you don't own yourself anymore. And there's nothing that's yours. It's all his, including all of our wealth. And so now we go from thinking that we're an owner to understanding we're a steward trusted with what it is. Well, uh, I like the Old Testament principles of 10%, right? You see, what, you know what the problem is, is that when you get to the New Testament, there's no clear thing. God, God says, all right, I'll leave it up to you. Oh, I'll leave it up to you. How much? How much did I give? How much is mine? How much should you keep for yourself? I'll leave it up to you. Well, in the Old Testament, it's 10%, right? Please, uh, Old Testament didn't have Jesus and, um, I mean, do you really think that's what God's heart is? Or is it, hey, I gave you my son Jesus. Now, what do you think God's heart is now? How do you apply that now? How much? See, he leaves it up to you. What is God's heart? I think it's actually crystal clear. It's all his. It's all his. He doesn't just go, well, it's only 10% of it is mine. The rest of it is yours. I mean, that doesn't apply. It's... That's not what he's teaching us here, right? I got off a little bit on that, but it's because it's just another one of those touchy subjects like hell. Don't talk about money in church. 
how do I live in light of this? How do I live? You know, I struggle with this a little bit because I usually go, what does this have to do with me? It just, it just seems like if, if I'm going to conclude this study on eternity and we're going to wrap it all together, I should say, how do I live in light of knowing these things now, right? Number one, we, we, we must never hold on to this doctrine lightly. What doctrine? The doctrine of hell. And the consequences here, we should never hold it pridefully. We should never hold it in self, uh, self-righteously, <laughs> right? Like, oh, I'm safe from this and now I can just do what I want, right? It should break our hearts that there are blind and rebellious people all around us right now that are moving, that are marching pretty much their way toward a, a, a God-separated separate, eternal punishment eternity. It should break our hearts. It should scare us to death. It should make us compassionate and, and make us live different. How do I live in light of knowing this? We can't hold on to this lightly. This is huge. We should weep and let that sadness grip our hearts and produce tenderness and humility inside of us and say, I've got to live different. I've got to model some things. I need, to, to, I need my life to scream and, and project to the world that I live in. I need, uh, my life should be showcasing the essence of who God is in every way possible. I can't take this lightly, right? How should I live in light of this? Here's number two, actively fight the delusion that it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter. And that you get to decide, right? We're in constant conversation with ourselves. I said this before. We d- I did almost a whole lesson on this, right? No one's more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. <laughs> we are so good at lying to ourselves. We are always theologizing with ourselves, right? And I think it's really important to require yourself to be aware of your own self-talk. Be aware of what you're saying to yourself and how we just justify most things. It's amazing. This is an amazing dynamic. If the believer in Jesus, if, if God takes this heart of stone out of us and replaces it with a heart of flesh, that means that when we do that, when we do what is wrong, our conscience bothers us, right? And when our conscience bothers us, we only have one of two choices. You either confess that wrong and that the wrong is wrong and you place yourself once again on the justified mercies of Christ and receive his forgiveness or you erect some sort of system of self-justification that makes the wrong acceptable to your conscience. Well, you know, there's these... This is... You don't understand the circumstances. These are extenuating circumstances. I mean, you don't know who I live with and what they've done. We're so skilled at doing this. Paul talks about pretenses that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. A pretense is a plausible lie. It's just a plausible lie. What we do is rather than run when our conscience bothers us, run from whatever it is. Rather than run towards the grace of Jesus, we work, build arguments that will make that wrong acceptable 
that'll make that wrong acceptable to our conscience, right? That ball wasn't going to roll in. Nobody thought it was going to roll in. Come on, you big meanie. What are you doing? You just took the joy out of everything. Nobody wants to win like this. Nobody wants to lose like this. I mean, just listen to it. It was comical after a while. It was fueled by the media because it just creates controversy. That's what they want. Now, this is a big story. Pastor Ben's talking about it in church. Huge thing. That's the essence of who we are, right? That will that we have, that, 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 that makes the wrong seem less wrong. Plausible arguments make us feel okay about what is not okay. And because we live in a fallen world, we have a lot of things to point to, right? We have to be careful that we're not buying into this delusion that we can actually do what God says is wrong. We can only make ourselves feel okay about it, but we can, we, we can embrace the fact that it won't lead anywhere bad. We have to fight the delusion. It's a delusion. We have to fight that. It's hard to fight. You, you have to rail against our culture a lot. Number three, require yourself to see sin as sinful. Shouldn't take a whole lot of explanation there, but sin doesn't always look sinful to us. It doesn't. When a man is lusting after a woman, he doesn't see danger. He doesn't see disaster. He doesn't see brokenness. He doesn't see, see immorality. He sees beauty. That's the way we're designed. That's the danger of sin. When a young person has now stepped way beyond God's boundaries, way beyond his parents' boundaries or her parents' boundaries. It doesn't feel like danger. It doesn't feel like disaster or destruction. What he does, what he's doing feels like the buzz. Uh, you feel the buzz of temporary autonomy, temporary freedom. It's like a drug. The husband or wife in a self-righteous arrogant way demeans their spouse and, there's, and, and their wisdom by arguing them into a corner with great delight. doesn't feel like ugliness or a lack of love in that. You feel the power of winning. Do you like to lose? I don't like to lose an argument. I don't. The child who's eating that last bite of the cookie that he was told not to because we haven't had dinner yet. He doesn't taste disaster. He doesn't taste chocolate. Ch- uh, he tastes chocolate chips. Because that last bite happened before mom came into the room. You know, he lives with the power of getting away with it, and it was just so good. That's, it's, it's our nature, right? The scary thing about sin, it's deceitful. It's the ability to present itself as something beautiful. When it's not beautiful at all, some of you have fallen in places, maybe even this week, because you, you bought into the beauty of sin and you let the beauty propel you when, uh, when sin is anything but beautiful. Require yourself to see sin as sinful. Call it like it is. Be thankful for final justice, actually. Be thankful. I would have loved to have one golfing pro Stand up and say, one woman, just one, one in all of it and say, look, it's the rules. If there's no rules, there's no tournament, whatever. Let's get on with it and go. 
She picked it up before she should have. I don't like it any more than anybody else does, but that's the consequence. One pro. No, everybody danced around the whole thing. Oh, man, just, oh, just feeding the fury of the media. Not even the commentary. If, if they did say, oh, the rules are the rules, it'd be like, you know, they're like, well, you know, I, I would have liked to have seen it different, but, you know, I'm like, come on, somebody have some nerve to call it like it is. Are you kidding? It's a game with rules. She broke the rules. Shut up. Let's go. You know, it's just one person, one. Nobody, no, you Google it. Just listen to the blathering going on out there. In every, it's everywhere around us, and there is a cry in the heart of every human being for justice. When will justice come? Justice is coming. There will be final justice. Injustice will die because God is holy. It's coming. It's coming. Let's quit pretending. Number five, celebrate grace. Don't ever stop celebrating grace. Yes. We cannot behave ourselves out of hell into heaven. You can't behave correctly and rightly, right? Enough. It's never going to happen because our big problem is us. The thing that we need to be saved from is ourselves. The thing we need to be rescued from is ourselves. The thing that we need to be protected from is ourselves. We are our problem. See, David says it. He didn't say, well, my problem was a beautiful woman who who lived next to me, and I just happened to see, you know, she was naked, right? No, he says this in his confession. Behold, I was shapen in in iniquity and in, in sin did my mother conceive me, created me a clean heart, oh God. God, it's me. It's my heart. It's my nature. I'm the problem. David finally figured that out. And so the only hope for us is that God would reach down into the sludge of our sin and lift us out by his grace. We can't behave our way out of that, right? He had to be the sacrificial lamb. He had to give us the sacrificial lamb, Jesus. He had to conquer death because sinners can't behave their way out of their sin. They must be rescued by powerful, rescuing, forgiving, transforming grace. Our hope is in one thing. It's grace. Celebrate grace. Number six, keep reminding yourself of what is important. It sounds trivial. God is important. His reign is important. His glory is important. His rescuing is important. His grace is important. Don't be fooled by believing that unimportant things are important and they begin, because they begin to take moral command over your life and lead you into dark and destructive places and directions. Remind yourself again and again what is important. Surround yourself with people who remind you what is important. Church helps to lay foundations of truths of what is important. Church is important because it's so easy for us to fall into elevating things into levels of importance way beyond their true importance. Number seven, it's the last one. Be eager and devoted to share wherever you are the gospel of um, rescuing grace. It's the whole reason why we would start something like for recovery. How can you look at the theology of final judgment and eternal punishment and not be motivated to share what you have? The gospel of rescuing grace. Tomorrow, 
You're going to connect with people who are headed towards doom. (laughs) I know. And they don't know it. And you've been sovereignly positioned by God in those people's lives. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Eternity is real. Eternal life and eternal death or hell. This is normally where I would say, what does this have to do with me? But I've already kind of said it. These teachings and scriptures are inescapable. That's what it really has to do with us. They're inescapable, right? There is a final judgment. There's a place of eternal torment called hell. The only hope for humanity is the glory of the rescuing grace of Jesus. That's what this has to do with us. Can't avoid talking about hell. I don't know. I I came on really strong today. I did it on purpose. I'm just trying to try my best to draw out the truth from the text and present it like, like this. It should stare us all in the face and kind of scare us to death. Let's pray. Lord, we can be people who hold on to clarity of theology, yet in moments in our lives live in moral denial. And that's us, God. Thank you for the clear warnings in your word. Crystal clear. Help us to receive them as grace, as grace. Thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for paying, uh, paying for us a price we could not pay for conquering and conquering for us what we, we could not defeat. We are deeply grateful, Lord God. Now help us to live it in a way to where people want what we have. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.